Hi, I'm Evan from Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm Nicole from Toronto. I'm Jake from Chattanooga. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. When MTV News producer Ben Wagner turned 30, he went to Nantucket and met someone very special. Was standing watching the sunset and from the edge of the dune heard, Is the birthday boy here? And turned and there he is. It was Mr. Rogers. What did he talk about with the world's kindest man? How did it change his life? Stick around. It's Bullseye. Oh, man, oh, man, it's a good show this week. I'll talk to Ben and Christopher Wagner about America's most beloved broadcaster, Mr. Fred Rogers, and we will all hold back tears. Plus, I'll sit down with another beloved cardigan-American, Mr. Bob Newhart. Yes, the Bob Newhart. And did you know that God calls into sports talk radio programs? We'll feature another chapter of God's memoir, as written by comedy scribe David Jabberbaum. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by some of our favorite culture critics to recommend some stuff that is worth your time. This week, we are joined by worldwide web curator extraordinaire, Mr. Jason Kotke from Kotke.org. Hey, Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Jesse. How are you doing? Oh, fantastic. I'm excited to talk about The Wire, which is my favorite television show ever. Um, (laughs) So, Jason, your first recommendation is this document called The Wire Bible. Um, It is the showrunner's handbook, essentially, for the television show The Wire, which many consider to be the best television show ever, including me, um, and which ran on HBO for many years. It was a cop show, but also much broader in its implications. And maybe we should start by taking a listen to a bit of the opening scene from the show, which which really set the tone about as as well as an opening scene could. Who shot snot? I ain't going to no court. I'm a ain't have to put no cap in him, no. Definitely not. I mean, he could have just whipped his ass like we always whip his ass. Well, I agree with you. Let me understand you. Every Friday night, you and your boys will shoot crap, right? And every Friday night, your pal Snot Boogie. He'd wait till there was cash on the ground, then you'd grab the money and run away? you let him do that? Man, we'd catch him and beat his ass, but ain't nobody never go past that. I gotta ask you, if every time Snot Boogie would grab the money and run away, why'd you even let him in the game? What? When Snot Boogie always stole the money, why'd you let him play? God, this America, man. A show Bible is like the thing that the creator writes to guide the people who work on the show with him, right? It, it seems to be something that's that that came after he pitched the show, and it's and it's kind of like here is what I'm going to deliver. Here's what the show is going to be about, and uh, here's a synopsis of the first you know ten twelve episodes. You can say what what you want about uh, David Simon, but there is no doubt that this was a man with a vision. 
Yeah, I mean, you look at this document and it's all, you know, it just covers the first season, but the wider arc of what he wanted the show to be about is all there. You know, he wanted it to be more than just a cop show. You know, he mentions the stuff about the Greek tragedy, which I don't think anybody picked up on for about three seasons. Uh, You know, the good guys are bad and the bad guys are good and the whole system is kind of like falling in on itself and all of that is in this Bible, you know, that he wrote before he even started filming the show. Jason, you've also recommended this group of survival tips for the Middle Ages. These are actual recommendations in case someone misprograms their time machine and it blows up when they land there? (laughs) Yeah, uh, somebody emailed Tyler Cowen, who runs uh, Marginal Revolution, which is an economics blog, but it's also a lot about a about a lot of other different things and uh, they basically asked if I'm you know transported to uh, to Europe in in the year 1000 uh, you know how can I survive basically what were the things that were the most interesting to you in those tips like the most surprising a consensus that kind of developed that you're probably not going to do pretty well you might you might have a lot of trouble surviving, even though you're supposedly this modern person with all this vast knowledge of how the world works, and you know how economics works better than anybody in that world. You know how science works. You probably know more math, all this sort of thing. And, and it's just that that world is was so closed, you'd have a hard time surviving. <laughs> One suggestion that I like is this suggestion to... Uh, market despirited water, which is to say water that has been boiled. Right, because that was a, you know, I think at the time they they didn't really drink straight up water because it was, you know, it was polluted or, or it would make you sick or, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, when I say polluted, I mean polluted with germs, I guess. And uh, so they um, they basically put alcohol in their water or they just drank straight alcohol so they would drink meat or wine or you know whatever instead of water and uh, you know if you had nice clean water that people could drink without you know kind of getting drunk and dulling their senses you know I think that would have been kind of a magical thing it's possible that you would be considered a witch and burned alive though probably within a few days yeah (laughs) (laughs) well Jason Kotke from kotke.org recommends uh, checking out this list of survival tips for the Middle Ages and the show Bible for the television program The Wire. You can find both of those links on our website at MaximumFun.org. Just click on Bullseye, or you can search for them on Jason's website, which is Kotke.org. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is one of the most legendary figures in American comedy, Bob Newhart. Um, He is uh, one of the first great stars of stand-up comedy, um, the first best-selling stand-up comedian on record, and one of the first stand-up comics to anchor a sitcom. He was the star of two long-running smash hit sitcoms and has acted in numerous films and television shows since, and it's a great honor to be in his office speaking with Thank him. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for, for being on the show. Um, you grew up in Chicago, and I wonder what you, what you thought of when you thought of a career in comedy when you were 
you know, when you were at the age where you actually have to think of a career, when you were 17 or 19 or something like that, what did you think it, it was or could be? Well, um, I, I, was, I, was, I was much too practical to presume to have a career in comedy. It, it was, um, you know, I, I was active in, a, in a, a local stock company. I didn't believe the movies that where the producer's car breaks down and, and while he's waiting for it to be fixed, he decides to go and see the play and and you're just what he's looking for. And, then you know, I, hey, I want to sign you up for my Broadway show. I did, you know, that, that doesn't happen in real life. So I had a degree, in effect, in accounting. It was actually in management. But I had the, but I, I still had realized that isn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And so decided I was just going to give comedy a try. People had been telling me, oh, you're very funny, you think very funny. And they would say, you should go to Broadway, you know. And uh, and I, I always thought, you know, well, that's easy for you to say, but I have to go to Broadway and fall on my face and then crawl, somehow crawl back to Chicago. But, but, but there were moments along the way that, I, I thought to myself, you have really screwed up your life. You, I mean, my the guys I went to high school with are getting married, having kids, and buying homes, and um, and I was still knocking around Chicago with with really nothing on the horizon. And uh, but it 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 paid off far in, in in excess of what I ever expected. Did you ever think of yourself as someone who might get up on stage into a stage act? Before no, you made your album, my my probably my aspiration at that time, uh, if if I could have been a, a comedy writer for Bob and Ray, that that probably would have I, I would have been very happy to have, to have spent the rest of my life just writing for Bob and Ray because I thought they were so they were so great, they were so inventive and so and so great. Elliot is covering the literary scene tonight, so come in, Bob. It seems as if every year they're coming out with bigger and bigger books at higher and higher prices. Now, the author of one such work is here with me now. You are Mr. Nelson, uh, Alfred E. Nelson, am I correct? That's in that? right, and the book I wrote is a history of the United States. Yes, well, I've been looking through this uh, copy we have here. It's 1,100 pages long, isn't it, Mr. Yeah. Nelson? And at that, I'm just beginning to scratch the history of this country. Well, now, there are quite a few questions I'd like to ask you about it. First of all... As I remember, you had Abraham Lincoln driving to his inauguration in an automobile. Did you check on that at all? Well, uh, there are several glaring errors in the book that unfortunately I didn't catch. Now, that was one of them. Uh, referring to the father of our country as uh, Nelson Washington. That was another one. You know, actually, I was thinking of my own last name there, you know. Actually, his real name, I think, is George. Yeah, well, you have, uh, you have a number of things like that in the book. That was a clip from the comedy duo Bob and Ray an early influence of my guest, legendary stand-up comedian and actor Bob Newhart. The first thing that you did was actually uh, uh, was actually a two-man act that was a little bit like Bob and Ray, right? More than a little bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a rip-off of Bob and Ray. Uh, tell me about how, how it started. This was a, with a friend of yours whose name was Ed Gallagher. Ed Gallagher, yeah. Uh, I was in accounting. I was at that time, I was with... Um, I'm pretty sure it was the Glidden Company. Uh, Ed and I were in the stock company, the the Oak Park Players. And uh, so around three thirty, four o'clock, I, I would become depressed. 
<laughs> my role as, as an accountant. Just, and so to break up the monotony of, of accounting, um, which I wasn't very good at to begin with, um, I would call in and I would just, um, we would do things. We'd improvise over over the phone. And uh, someone heard about it. Like, I called him one time and I said, uh, uh, Mr. Yeah, Mr. Smathers. Uh, yeah, this is Bob at the East Factory, and uh, yeah, we have a fire here, sir. And the uh, fire company is they're they're pouring water on it. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm uh, Mr. Smathers. I'm going to have to run up to the second floor. Uh, yeah, okay, I'll, yeah, so <laughs> that was that was one which could have been a Bob and Ray routine. It could have very easily been. So somebody heard about it and said, "You you guys ought to." Ought to record these things and and syndicate them. Uh, his name was Chris Chris Peterson, and uh, and he put up the money for uh, for an acetate for us to send out to a hundred stations, which we did. And we heard back from three stations: um, uh, Northampton, Mass, uh, Idaho Falls, Idaho, and Jacksonville, Florida. So they said, "What do you want for these?" And Ed, Ed and I had no idea, uh, so. So I said, I and I don't know, I I don't know, maybe, I don't know, seven dollars and fifty cents a week. I I don't I don't know. Is that so? Um, well, it turns out that that wasn't right, and and it wound up costing us money <laughs> out of pocket, out of out of pocket. But it was a great. We should repeat that you were an accountant at the time. Yes. <laughs> so I could keep the books, but then I could see that we weren't making any money. At the end of 13 weeks, uh, one of the stations stiffed us. I don't remember which one. Uh, and the other two wanted to renew us. And we had to write back to them and tell them we couldn't afford to do this anymore, that it was it was costing us too much money in postage and tape. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were by this point in your late 20s. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it it's... It's no small thing that you're like uh that you're a sort of straight arrow Catholic guy in his late twenties who's unmarried and living with his mom because he wants to because uh, he wants to do this weird comedy thing right yeah, and also the, the, the my mom and dad uh, they really they didn't know what I was doing they had they had no idea they knew I went downtown and I did something and uh, <laughs> it had something to do with radio, or I fixed radios, or I sold radios. It had something to do they with radio. They had their radio. fingers crossed that <laughs> so, maybe you were please. a prostitute. <laughs> like, you're so big. And I'm sure my father was saying, what, what, what is he doing? What is he? Mom would say, just, uh, Dad, just calm down, calm down. He's, he'll amount to something someday. So, I mean, I don't mean to put it on a higher level, but I, I just had to find out. I just... Then if it didn't work, then I could spend the rest of my life in accounting or advertising or public relations or something. But I I, I had to find out. I, I just had to find out if I was any good or not. So I set aside a year, and uh, and then the year became two, and then two became three. And then uh, in about year four, uh, I made a record album, and that was through the roof. This is a telephone conversation between Abe and his press agent just before Gettysburg. 
I ain't sweetheart, how are you, kid? How's Gettysburg? Sort of a drag, huh? Well, Abe, you know them small Pennsylvania towns. <laughs> you seen one, you seen them all. <laughs> right. Uh, listen, Abe, I got the note. What, what, what's the problem? You're, you're, you're thinking of shaving it off. Uh, Abe, uh, don't you see that's part of the image? Right, with the, with the shawl and the stovepipe at the string tie. You, you don't have the shawl. Uh, where's the shawl, Abe? That's Bob Newhart from his breakthrough album, The Button-Down Mind of Bob Newhart. It was his first album. It hit the top of the charts in 1961, beating out Elvis Presley and won a Grammy for Album of the Year. When Warner Brothers asked Newhart to record that album, what they didn't know was that he had never performed on stage at a nightclub. Newhart was a radio guy, a failed radio guy, truth be told. So he had to learn some new skills fast. We'll have more after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported in part by Squarespace 6, a site for creating a blog or portfolio with over 100 new templates and fonts using a drag-and-drop interface and scalable designs, offering a 24-hour support team. More at squarespace.com bullseye. You can follow Bullseye on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne and click like. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedy legend Bob Newhart. What's interesting to me about what you did and what was really distinctive about what you did was that you set yourself up as the straight man in the one-sided conversation, which is unusual. I mean, Shelley Berman had huge success in hilarious records doing this. And, you know, Shelley Berman is is not the straight man. You know, Shelley Berman's comic persona was a, you know, ball of mess. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, but, uh, you know, brilliant ball of mess, but a disaster area. And um, you're, you were always, you were always implying the insanity rather than embodying the insanity. In McEwen's terms, my, Marshall McEwen, what I was doing was hot as opposed to the cold medium of just sitting back and listening because it involved the audience. The audience had to supply the other end of the of the conversation. So at the end, when you finished, they, they applauded, but they really were applauding themselves on how clever they were to figure out what was going on on the other. So they, they, were, they were involved. We have a show in Chicago called The Silent Service. And it's about the submarines and peace and war. They had one on about uh, two weeks ago, and it dealt with this nuclear submarine, which went around the world for two years and never pulled into port. It was sort of an endurance test for the sailors <laughs> to, to find out how they would react under, under these situations. And the whole thing was kind of summed up in the last five minutes by the captain of the submarine, and he gave an address to the crew uh, just as they were about to surface after completing this two-year trip. And it went something like this. Man, I think you'll agree, I've been, I've been pretty lax as far as discipline is concerned, and uh, uh, golly, nobody enjoys a joke more than I do. 
but I would like the executive officer returned. <laughs> now, we've looked in the torpedo tubes, uh, we've looked in, in, your, in your bags, and... Uh, I mean, it's, it's been over two weeks, man, and I... We're, we're, just, we're just damn lucky that it wasn't a, the navigational officer or someone, someone real important like that. Uh, looking back on the mutiny, uh, I think a lot of the trouble stemmed from the fact that uh, you men weren't, weren't coming to me with your problems. Uh, as I told you, uh, the door to my office is always open. I think you know why it's always open. That was stolen. I'd like that return. That's Bob Newhart from his breakthrough album, The Button-Down Mind of Bob Newhart. You recorded um, a few of these uh, pieces yourself and brought them to a sort of a, a sort of meeting with some Warner Brothers executives. And at the time, Warner Brothers Records was um, standing on shaky ground. Yes, <laughs> um, which is why which is why they were taking meetings with um, you know random comedians from Chicago. Well, well who had I, no, solo actually, acts what happened no was live a friend, a friend of mine was was a disc jockey. Uh, his name's Dan Sorkin, and he was a very hot disc jockey. So they were touring the country, calling because it was it was on shaky ground. And um, Dan said, "I have this friend of mine. I think is very funny." And and they said, "I right, put something on tape." I had at that time uh, the driving instructor, Abe Lincoln, and the submarine commander were the three routines that I had. So I put them down on tape and brought them to the studio, and Dan played the tape for the Warner brother. Jim Conkling was president. And they said, okay. Uh, they sa- and they said, we'll record you at your next nightclub. And I said, well, we have a problem uh, there because I've never played a nightclub. <laughs> So they said, well, we'll have to get you into a nightclub. And I found out recently that it took them almost a year to find a club <laughs> that would take a chance on someone who had never walked on a nightclub floor. And so in February of 1960, I walked onto a nightclub floor, terrified, out of my mind. But one of the first things you learn in stand-up is you can never let the audience know you're nervous because then... You, you're you're chopped meat. You're, you you make them nervous. It it doesn't work. So you have to muscle all the bravado you have and and pretend you know what you're doing. And I walked out and and, and did that. And for two weeks, I had half an album actually with those three. And then I had two weeks to find the other side of the album, which I would try different things at night, every night. Uh, so. By the time they were ready to record, I, I had a full album. I got thinking about inventions. Now, inventions today are handled entirely different than they were, say, 100 years ago. They set up new product corporations, they have sales promotion firm, and they look at the invention in a business-like way. And this got me to thinking, supposing the Wright brothers had gone to a new product corporation to market their new invention called the aeroplane. I think if they had, a guy from the sales promotion firm would have talked to him on the phone, something like this. Uh, hello, uh, who is this, Orville? 
Where's Where's Willard? Or Wilbur, I'm sorry. I, and he'll be on uh, late at the bicycle shop all week, huh? Uh, listen, uh, I talked to the guys here at the office, and we're real excited about this thing. Uh, we really think you got something. Well, uh, we, we got a couple questions. Um, I, th I think you pretty much agree with us uh, that the, the only way to make any loot on it is, is, to, is to start booking passengers as soon as possible. Right. Yeah, well, uh, we may pick up a little on the baggage gimmick, you know, if we, if we set it low enough, but not enough to, to make it worthwhile. Well, I, I got a couple questions. Now... All the pictures we got show either you or Wilbur uh, lying on the wings. Now, when we start booking passengers, uh, oh, they will, huh? Well, uh, I mean, if we're going to cloud them for 75, 80 bucks to the coast, you know, I don't know how they'll go for lying on the wings like that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 how, how many could you handle, do you suppose? Five on either side. That's top, huh? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that's your end of it. I don't, I don't want to get into that. Uh, listen, is there any way of putting a John on it? It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bob Newhart. We're talking about the recording of his debut record, one of the first ever smash hit comedy albums, The Button-Down Mind of Bob Newhart. We spoke at his home office in Bel Air. When the record took off, which it did, I mean, it, it took a minute, but it became a sort of national phenomenon. How did you feel about that? I mean, you, you strike me as such a sort of modest guy, and you had also had, um, you know, at that point, 10 years of doing various things that hadn't worked at all. <laughs> you know, you hadn't been climbing the ladder. You'd basically just been walking oh, oh. straight. When other comedians hit it, they had been climbing up this ladder, and they knew exactly what they were going to do if they ever got their own show. It's going to be this, it's going to be that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to have an entourage, I'm going to have the first thing I'm going to buy is a Cadillac. And then I'm going to get a monkey. Grandiose plans. <laughs> and, uh, but all of a sudden, I, I, was, I was thrust into the limelight, not, not totally unprepared for for what was happening. I mean, I never expected the it, the, the album would be as well-received as, as it was. Did you feel um, guilty or uncomfortable about it at all? I, I didn't feel guilty. I felt, uh, I don't know what I'm doing, and, and they're going to find this out pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> and there's going to be hell to pay. <laughs> Your two sitcoms were, and especially the first of the two, was sort of the the first time that a stand-up comedian's persona had been translated into the sitcom format. Something that became, you know, popular and then to the point of cliche in the eighties and nineties. Um, but it it was totally new in the at the beginning of the 70s it was it was something that just hadn't really been done um and certainly hadn't been done with the the success that that you had with it um what was the what led you into that kind of tv you know when you could have certainly continued to be a very successful stand-up comedian and 
just done you know a film part here and there as you had been doing since since your first television show for at that point you know seven or eight years yeah. um well i was married by that time had uh, our firstborn rob and i was on the road I didn't want to be on the road. I wanted to be home and live a somewhat normal life. Um, I was approached at that point by Arthur Price, who was also my manager, my co-manager at that time, uh, who he and uh, Mary Tyler Moore and Grant Tinker formed MTM. And he said, would you like to do a situation comedy? And and I said, yeah. I said, get me off the road and uh, some kind of normal life. I I think what a what a stand up brings to a situation comedy, and you look at Roseanne or look at Jerry Seinfeld or uh, um, on and on and on. They they know how to time the joke. They they know what the joke is. They understand the joke, the construction of the joke. But more importantly. What what a comedian brings is is his knowledge of himself, that the integrity of what he does, which is that they could have a killer line, and 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 you you have to say, see I would but I wouldn't say that, you know give that to somebody else because I I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I mean it, it's a it's a great line it's a funny funny line. But I I shouldn't be saying it. So it, it's an it's. I think that explains the longevity of of the stand up comedy and and Bill Cosby of course. Um, when I heard Bill was going to do a situation comedy, I I knew it was going to be a hit because I knew what Bill was going to do. He was going to do Bill and the family and and uh, and the mother and father and the grandparents and you know you just knew. And the first year was pretty much Bill's stand up act. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedy legend Bob Newhart. We're talking about his 1970 sitcom, The Bob Newhart Show. On the show, Newhart stars as the psychologist Bob Hartley. You're afraid of flying? That's what I said. Well, honey, that's just stupid. (laughs) Do you tell those people in your workshop who are terrified of flying that they're stupid? Well, of course not, honey, but... uh... I don't love them. I mean, I love you, and when you love somebody, it's all right to tell them that they're being stupid. What exactly are you afraid of? The part where you're off the ground. (laughs) Remember when I asked you where you want to go on our honeymoon? Hawaii, Acapulco? Did flying have anything to do with the fact you chose Gary, Indiana? There's something about a sitcom where it's a it's a group of people who go through these adventures together, but it always sort of comes back to the same place. And the reason that you go back to watching a sitcom is because you want to spend time with these people. And so the central strength of a sitcom is if these people are vibrant. Like if this if this is a group of characters that you want to be with. Let me Tell you something I heard along the way that helped me in my in the the Bob Newhart show. Jack Benny, Jack just doing uh, his television show. And Ronald Coleman, the actor, is his guest, and 
on Monday they have a table read and everybody sits down and they read and the writers are there and the producers and everybody's making notes and laughing at, at their joke that the one whichever <laughs> comedy writer wrote that joke you could tell because he would be hysterical <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, so so Jack says um, he said, you know, no, don't, no, give that line to Dennis. It's fun, that's funnier if Dennis says that line. I, uh, you know, and, oh, and give that line to Phil. Give that line to Phil Harris. And, and so the, the reading is over, and Ronald Coleman came up to Jack. He said, he said Jack, you gave away almost all your, your best lines, you know. And Jack said, yeah, but, but I'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> that's... If you want to last, you better get a lot of good people behind you and uh, and let them do their thing. Because because if you try to claim it all for yourself, you're going to last about two weeks. So I mean, you've you've had a a pretty remarkable career, and you still do road gigs. You're still you still do a couple dozen one nighters a year. Um, and you're still acting in film and television, um, you know, not as prolifically as you once did, but you know, when things come along enough, yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder if, I wonder like what keeps you, what keeps you moving forward, whether it's, there's something that you want to achieve or whether it's just, um, you know, whether that it's just that you enjoy being in a state of motion. You know what I mean? The alternative to me is Sunset Boulevard. You know, the alternative is sitting in a darkened room um, and have Eric von Stroheim come in and ask me which episode of the Bob Newhart show I want to watch that day. (laughs) (laughs) If I think of a really great routine, am I going to do it for the dog? I mean, well, you know... uh, Plus, Von Strawn doesn't work cheap, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, as long as I'm physically able to travel and stand up and and still make sense, <laughs> um, I, I just don't see myself, I don't see myself stop doing it. it it's, why would you stop making people laugh? Why, why would you say, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore? Well, Mr. Newhart, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. Thank you. I enjoyed it myself. Bob Newhart still regularly performs stand-up in venues across the country. You can find his tour schedule at bobnewhart.com. He's also on Twitter, at Bob Newhart. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Did you know that God actually wrote a memoir? Well, it was one of those as-told-to type situations, dictated to Emmy Award-winning comedy writer David Javerbaum. And did you know God's a sports fan? Well, here's his thoughts on the subject. What you may not know about me is that every so often I like to call into sports radio shows. I tell the screener I am Mike from Massapequa or Sam from Santa Clara, and he talks to me a minute to make sure that I am worthy enough not only to discuss the foibles of the area's athletic teams, but to freight that conversation with enough entertainment value to warrant its being broadcast to 35,000 other people in the greater, say, St. Louis area. 
I'm put on hold, then I hear, you're on the air. And then I launch into a passionate monologue about the value of switch-hitting outfielders and dogfighting, the eternal beauty of the pick-and-roll and steroids, the day the Red Sox won the World Series, and the day O.J. Simpson murdered two people. In other words, all things sports. For a few pleasant minutes, the host and I complain and commiserate and argue with each other. Then I am thanked for calling, and the hosts move on, never realizing that the unseen voice with which they just talked pucks was not in fact Mike from Massapequa, but God from the great beyond. But I do not mind, for I do not call in to be recognized. I call because I love talking sports. Sport is mythic. Sport is epic. Sport is a condensation of all human activity. It is often said that sport is a metaphor for life. It would be more accurate to say, life is a metaphor for sport. U.S. Chief Justice Earl Warren once wrote, I always turn to the sports section first. The sports section records people's accomplishment. The front page reveals nothing but man's failures. A few moments' reflection reveals how utterly wrong these words are. Yet they are in keeping with the kind of mindless distraction that sports provide. They are also the greatest substitute for armed conflict ever devised. They are like unto diet war, a zero-casualty alternative to regular war, with all the great fighting and suffering and action thou demandest in a conflict, but almost none of the adverse health effects. Especially do I love the Olympics the pageantry of all the nations of the world joining together in peaceful competition as a million armed security personnel hover just off camera, myth-making at its finest. The opening ceremony in Beijing 2008 was one of the most extraordinary events I have ever seen, transcendent and thrilling. It made me again recall the greatness thy species is capable of, at least when one-fifth of it bites on the same repressive yoke. And aside... The gauntlet has been thrown down, London. Thou wilt need to do something spectacular in 2012 to top the Chinese. May I suggest Duchess Kate giving birth in the middle of Olympic Stadium just as the torch is lit? If thou likest the idea, I can help with the timing. But it is not just the Olympics. I love all sports. Athletic competition of every type and size and description enthralls and delights me. Except tennis, which is Dullesville. In sports, I see the finest specimens of my finest creation operating at the highest level of their physical abilities. And as a sports fan, I understand how much the games mean to both other fans and the athletes. The passion they stir, the tempests they royal, the loyalties they build, and above all, the rivalry, violence, and rioting they so justifiably evoke. And that is why I have never, ever influenced the outcome of a sporting event to determine the winner. Have only, on extremely rare occasions, influence the outcome of a sporting event to affect the spread. An excerpt from the book The Last Testament, a memoir by God, as dictated to David Javerbaum. It's available now. David is a former writer and executive producer for The Daily Show, and he's also the man behind the Twitter account at the Tweet of God. Our voice of God is comedian and funnier die writer Seth Morris. He's on Twitter at Seth is Morris. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to spend a day with Mr. Rogers for real in the flesh? Find out after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International.
Hey, gang. The Max FunCon East lineup is posted right now on our website, maxfuncon.com. Want to spend the weekend with an Olympic pentathlete? You know you do. She might even share some of her secrets of success. Like fencing really well. And how about stand-up comedy from Michael Ian Black? Yes, please. Want to take a class taught by Public Radio's Kurt Anderson? Uh Uh-huh. But there's one guy that you absolutely cannot miss. Talk show legend Dick Cavett. He'll be there, too. Max Funcon East is October 26th through the 28th in the Poconos. We'll have great sketch comedy from 10 West and Two Fun Men, a whole slew of classes to take you through the weekend, and tons of other stuff. The lineup is too long to list here, so go to our website, maxfuncon.com, and check it out. It'll be a truly amazing time. Registration is still open at maxfuncon.com. Bullseyes on Twitter. Follow us at twitter.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm about to talk to Ben and Christopher Wagner about their film, Mr. Rogers and Me. But first, here's a clip from the movie. Ben describes the first time that he met the beloved TV icon. Perhaps the defining moment of my life so far occurred in September 2001 on a tiny island 30 miles off the coast of Massachusetts. We were on Nantucket, a sleepy little whaling town turned upscale resort destination. I'd only stepped off the ferry a few hours ago. It was Labor Day 2001, the weekend of my 30th birthday. My cell phone was still vibrating as I stood on the back porch watching the last rays of light spill over the horizon. The buzz of New York City was slipping away as I settled into a quiet island night. When suddenly, a familiar voice from the edge of the dune asked, Is the birthday boy here? I turned to see America's favorite neighbor reaching out to shake my hand. See, Mr. Rogers summered in a modest gray shake-shingled house on the edge of Nantucket Island. My mother rented a tiny cottage next door. So Mr. Rogers really was my neighbor. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You know, I don't often invite someone onto our show without having seen the thing that we're going to talk about. But when Ben Wagner sent me an email and said, I've been working on this documentary film about being neighbors with Mr. Rogers and uh, uh, living a life with Mr. Rogers and uh, and the life of Mr. Rogers. And uh, oh, also, I'm an executive at MTV News. Um I knew it was just something that I I wanted to talk about <laughs> on my show. And when I saw his uh, sweet and um, gentle and, and incredibly touching movie, Mr. Rogers and Me, I, I have to say that I cried about half a dozen times um, because, to be frank, uh, there have been few more... Uh, powerful broadcasters in in my life than uh, Mr. Rogers, and honestly, few more powerful people. So it, it's a real pleasure to welcome Ben and his brother Christopher, who uh, made this film together. Uh, thanks, Bullseye. Jesse. Welcome, guys. Pleasure to be here. It's awesome, awesome, awesome. <laughs> Three of them. <laughs> so I mean, I I'm just going to start in the plainest place, which is um, I cannot imagine what it would be like to meet Mr. Rogers in real life. Like, I just can't wrap my head around that. He's such a powerful abstract figure that if he became concrete before me, I think I would just die. Which, you know, come to think of it, might 
be part of the reason that we spent the last 10 years doing this because it was it was significant. In a way, you can imagine it because he was the man in person. The experience I had with him uh, was not profoundly different from the experience we had as viewers as children um, or as parents watching with our children. Um, he was authentic. He was curious. He was engaged. He was warm. He was um, full of light, you know? I mean, just like coming out of his uh, ears, you know? And, uh, and, you know, that was, that was my experience as a kid as well, um, that you just felt um, safe and happy and informed, you know? Tell me what it was about it, that relatively brief sure. experience with him that yeah. was so powerful. Well, it was brief. So I had lemonade with him, and then we went, um, he gave us a tour of the house, um, which was actually kind of cool for a couple of reasons. Um, his, there were a pair of Keds underneath a cot. And he was like, and that's where I take my naps. And I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> there are your Keds. I mean, I remember he showed us in the kitchen. And it's a really sweet, modest house. It's called the Crooked House because it is crooked. I mean, it's basically settled into the dunes. Um, and you have to duck to get through some doorways and that kind of thing. Um, and he had um, the little pencil marks where his boys had grown up along the doorframe and his boys are in their 40s at that point you know and it was still there so it gives you a sense of it It was um really intimate and I think the reason um that afternoon was so profound and that one of three meetings was inspiring enough to do all this sort of work subsequent is in the back um in his study where he had a little computer and a piano and a desk um he um he asked me about my parents divorce I mean I knew I've known the guy for 35 minutes and he asked me um so tell you know i don't hear your mother doesn't talk about your father um tell me about um your parents divorce and you know it's mr rogers asking about your parents divorce it's a little like dr ruth asking about your sex life suddenly you've got you you have this entire body of work that says this is the best place and time for this dialogue you know the only difference is he wasn't he was wearing a polo shirt and glasses that's it that's it if anything he was more engaged more empathic more curious and that dialogue that i'd had with the television was really dialoguing back you know it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne my guests are ben and christopher wagner the directors of a movie called mr rogers and me I want to play a little bit of um, uh, a bit of audio from Mr. Rogers. This is him, uh, Fred Rogers, at a Senate hearing shortly after the uh, creation of public broadcasting. Um, and he is defending a, uh, a $20 million funding package for, uh, for, public, for public television specifically before um, a panel of senators who uh, honestly do not know who he is. Um, so so let's, let's take a listen to a little bit of that. And I feel that if we in public television can only make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable, we will have done a great service for mental health. Uh, I think that it's much more dramatic that two men could be working out their feelings of anger, much more dramatic than showing something of gunfire. I'm constantly concerned about what our children are seeing. 
And for 15 years, I have tried in this country and Canada to present what I feel is a meaningful expression of care. Do you narrate it? I'm the host, yes. And I do all the puppets, and I write all the music, and I write all the scripts. Well, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days. (laughs) Well, I'm grateful, not only for your goosebumps, but for your interest in, in our kind of communication. I think it's wonderful. Looks like you just earned the $20 million. <laughs> I've probably seen the video of that half a dozen times, and I'm still, like, I'm I'm having to control myself from crying hearing him. Ah, you're cool with us. Let <laughs> it rip. I cry every time I see the movie, and I can practically recite the movie shot by shot, word by word, and I still, we just screened it yesterday in, in Washington, and... I still tear up. Christopher, do you remember when you first saw that particular piece of video? Yeah, and I didn't actually see it till we were working on the on the documentary. And a lot of the stuff that he did was just like, how, how, how can we get this in there? It has to be in there. People have to hear this stuff because that's the kind of stuff you didn't hear on his show. And he wasn't, to my knowledge, horribly um, media present. In other words, he wasn't on a lot of interviews. He wasn't a public figure outside of his show. So you didn't get to hear about that kind of stuff. And I think that's some of what, some of what we ended up wanting to share was that this guy wasn't just some guy who went, okay, camera's on click. Let's go. That was him. 100%. The guy you saw on TV was the guy who lived his life every day that way. There's something, um, really beautiful about his grace in remaining so steadfast to his commitment to those children that watch the show. And when I say to those children that watch the show, I mean to me, mm-hmm. me personally. It's a very powerful, it's a very powerful thing. I'm trying to hold my <laughs> together. That's why we call it Mr. Rogers and me too, right? I mean, obviously a little borrowing a little bit from um, Michael Moore, but ostensibly that was just a naming device. The thinking is that I mean, we all have so many, maybe not all, but so many millions of people. I mean, for 30-plus years, 40-plus years, this was their first um, experience with broadcasting. And, boy, tough to top it. Where do you go from there? You know. I want to play uh, one more clip, and this is one that I hadn't seen before uh, I watched the movie. And um, uh, this, is, uh, this is Fred Rogers accepting a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Emmys. And... Um, I'll just say that um, we'll let the full clip run and it's a weird, um, there's a weird amount of silence in it for a radio show (laughs) to have, um, but your radio's not broken at the end of this. (laughs) So um, yeah, let's, let's take a, let's take a listen to his acceptance speech. Oh, it's a beautiful night in this neighborhood. So many people have helped me to come to this night. Some of you are here, some are far away, some are even in heaven. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take, along with me, 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are? those who have cared about you, 
and wanted what was best for you in life. Ten seconds of silence. I'll watch the time. whomever you've been thinking about, how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made. You know, they're the kind of people television does well to offer our world. Special thanks to my family and friends and to my coworkers in public broadcasting, family communications, and this academy for encouraging me allowing me all these years to be your neighbor. May God be with you. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, you can't really get much more present than that, you know? Just stand up in front of four million people on live television and say, let's all be quiet. Yeah. I mean, you know, how is she going to think, <laughs> right? How is she going to reflect if someone's always talking at you? Well, Christopher and Benjamin Wagner, thank you so much for uh, joining me on Bullseye. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. It's an honor to, to be here. Christopher and Benjamin Wagner are the men behind the documentary film Mr. Rogers and Me. It's available on iTunes and DVD. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the Outshot. A couple of years ago, we took a crew from our show to the Sundance Film Festival. Sundance, if you've never been, is kind of amazing and also kind of a nightmare. There's basically two groups of people there, film geeks and industry types. The film geeks are so deep in the movies and whatever work they're doing, a lot of them are journalists, that you can barely talk to them. And the industry types, I mean, you know, they're industry types. They're busy wearing Ugg boots in the snow. Our Jeep got stuck in a couple of snow drifts. We had to drive back to our rental house on a freeway in a blizzard in the pitch black at one point. The only good news was we did see a couple of amazing movies. One of them was called Boy. It's the story of a Maori boy. Actually, his name is Boy. He lives in a Maori town on the coast of New Zealand. His family's a mess. His mom's gone, and his gran has just left town for a family funeral. His goofus of a father's just back from jail and thinks he's going to start a gang, but doesn't really know how to do it. His little brother Rocky thinks he has magic powers, but doesn't. There's a buried bag of money and an extended dance sequence, along with a lot of real emotion, both large and small. Here's a little clip from the movie. Boy's dad, played by the writer-director Taika Waititi, brings a few of his would-be gangmates back to the house. Nice house, bro. It's a hole. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know, bro. These old houses are made of native timber, expensive stuff. Not many people know that, eh? And these door handles, made of copper. Yeah. Yeah, if I was a thief, first thing I'd do is I'd... I'd take all the copper and I'd, I'd melt it down in a furnace or a fire and then sell it to a copper dealer, eh? 
Boy is a bit like a Wes Anderson movie. If Wes Anderson movies were about people eking out a living and grinding poverty in the Southern Hemisphere instead of being about how great Owen Wilson is. Actually, Taika Waititi is a bit like a Maori Owen Wilson. His dopiness is somehow immensely charming until it starts to poison boys' adolescence. That's nice here. I like the waves. They're romantic. Did you and Mom meet here? Nah. We met at school when we were kids. Even then, I knew she was the one. Why, you got a girlfriend? Oh, there's this girl that really likes me a lot. But I don't know if I want to, you know, get involved. Mm -hmm. Well, don't get her pregnant, that's all. Hey. It's the number one rule. Hey, you can show her your feel it. I'll be happy if you just got a hickey. Mm. Don't have a kid, I don't want to be a coddle just yet. A hickey. The movie's star, James Rolleston, like the rest of the kids' cast, wasn't an actor, but he's amazing in the film. Ultimately, it's a movie about growing up and holding on to a sense of hope and wonder in a world that's closing in from every side. When we left Sundance, I was convinced that Boy was the breakout film of the festival, but it took two years to get into theaters in the United States. You can find out more, including whether it's playing near you, at boythefilm.com. I couldn't recommend it more. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You should like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bullseye with jesse thorne all of those words in one long string to get special updates you can also find us on twitter at bullseye and you can find me on twitter at jesse thorne i guess that's about it just remember all great radio hosts have a signature sign off bullseye is supported in part by ask metafilter thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.